0: podcast is sponsored in part by the Blue Ridge Institute for Theological Education and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about these institutions, please visit their websites at bright-va.org, that's b-r-i-t-e-va.org, or bts.education. And now, here is Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism.
1: Welcome back to the Larger for Life podcast, everyone. It's good to have you here, and we've been so appreciative of those that have been listening along, and we are continuing our way through the Larger Catechism, tackling together today with my co-hosts, Matt Adams, Sean Morris, Derek Bright, and Nick Bullock. Question four, how doth it appear that the scriptures are the word of God? The answer? The scriptures manifest themselves to be the word of God by their majesty and purity, by the consent of all the parts and the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, by their light and power to convince and convert sinners, to comfort and build up believers unto salvation. But the spirit of God, bearing witness by and with the scriptures in the heart of man, is alone able to fully persuade it that they are the very word of God. Fellas, there is no shortage of things to talk about here. Uh, For those that aren't uh, having a Westminster Larger Catechism in front of them right now, there's really two basic parts to this question. And I think that's going to be how we sort of structure our time uh, on the episode today, is there are two ways, big ways, Uh, that the scriptures demonstrate themselves to be the Word of God. So how do we know, what evidences do we have that this is the Word of God? Uh, Before the colon, after the colon, it says, but the Spirit of God bearing witness by and with the scriptures. Before that, we have all of these internal evidences that God's Word is, in fact, His Word. And then after that colon, the second part of our episode today. We'll talk about that internal testimony of witness, the supernatural way in which the word is demonstrated to be the word of God. So as we kind of dive in here, fellas, of these first descriptors or evidences that God's word is inspired by him, that it's true and trustworthy, what jumps out at you guys?
2: Well, I think what jumps out at me, I love the language here that um, the language of majesty and purity. Even if you need to read the scriptures. There is something truly majestic about them, something truly pure about them that um, you are persuaded as you're reading that what you're reading is not a normal document. It's not a human document in the sense that it's only a human author and there's no divine uh author behind it uh you know you know you are reading something that is clearly on a different plane than anything else this is truly god speaking to you and there is there's something about the language that's used um in all parts of the scripture you know i would go to for example the song of solomon okay and we can argue all day about how to interpret the song of solomon The point is, regardless of how you uh, uh, attempt to interpret that, the language that's used there is so majestic that it takes a subject that is often difficult for people to discuss and paints it with such heavenly beauty. Uh, that you are drawn into that text of Scripture. I mean, there there is something almost gravitating about the text that you get like a tractor beam. You're just pulled in uh, due to just the the majesty and the purity of the text.
0: That's right, I, Derek. Just I know we had uh, Nick and I had a professor in seminary, and we were talking. He, he just made this as an aside comment, but it just has stuck with me all these years. You know. In our last episode, we talked a little bit ever so briefly about the Apocrypha and how those are not rightly part of the canonical scriptures. And, you know, someone speaking speaking with the, the hypothetical opponent of, well, how do you know that the Apocrypha doesn't rightly belong right alongside the Old and the New Testaments of the scripture? And it was just, he said something to the effect of, listen, we could go through all of the historical evidence, the textual evidence, the critical evidence, even the archaeological evidence, and, and that, those all those things have their valid place. But um, just read it, <laughs> just read the scripture and then try and read these other things, you know, like uh, the Maccabees or Tobit or uh, the, the so-called gospel of Thomas or gospel of Peter, read those alongside uh, the canonical scripture, just read it out loud. And if it does not, if it does not stand out to you abundantly so that one is God-breathed and inspired by the Holy Spirit and the other doesn't, uh, if you, you you'll surely be able to discern that.
1: Derek, Isn't it, the- Derek, would you say that the whole majesty and purity, that that's something that's caught, not so much taught, like we can say, hey, this is majestic, but it's only once you read through it for yourself and you see it kind of dissect you and translate your heart to heaven. It's hard to communicate this with mere words, the majesty and the purity of the word. Is that fair to say?
2: Yes. And I think that the more you grow in your uh, walk with the Lord, the more you grow in sanctification, the more majestic it comes uh, to you or the more majestic it seems to you. And I think um, there are times I can remember when I first became a Christian and really reading the scripture for the first time and there was something about it um, that I would be underlining and highlighting things in my Bible and I really didn't know what they meant, but there was something that really just stuck out to me about it. And I didn't get the full sense of it. And now I go back and read those same scriptures that maybe I'd highlighted before. And I am even more caught up in that majesty of it because now I've, I've seen more of the connections. I've seen more of the Um, the truth that's there, I've grasped more of it for myself. And so the more I grow, and I think that's because, you know, in sanctification, we're being conformed to the image of the Son, and the more we, and we have the mind of Christ, right? So the more that we, uh, grow in that, the more we see, uh, just how truly majestic his word is.
3: I think it's a testimony of so many people (laughs) who come to the Bible as unbelievers and they take it up just as a book, and you, you hear it again and again, how, you know, I picked up the Bible, I was reading it to disprove it, yet I found in the reading of it just how wonderful it is, how magnificent it is, how beautiful it is, and so people tend to give the testimony, they pressed on with it. Uh, I, I knew a, a friend who gave this, a, a similar testimony, and he said, you know, as I read the Bible, the Bible was reading me, and really, what he's talking about is it speaking to his creation, speaking to his soul, speaking to inner things that naturally he hadn't even thought to think of, uh, things he couldn't touch upon. Yet the Bible was expounding who he was uh, to himself.
4: You know, one of the things that ca- catches my attention about that uh, early language in this in this question about majesty and purity is that those are. Characteristics that are often attributed to our God. um, And now the divines are attributing them to the words of God. Um, And, and, you know, in a grander way, the illustration um, comes to mind. You know, we can, you know, when when I speak, uh, it's very easily known that I'm deep south Bible belt. Uh, I create words because that's something that we do in Dylan. Um, we just create words that we want to use. And so you, you you can tell that the characteristics of Matt Adams carries out into the way that he talks or the way that he writes, the way that he reveals himself uh, through uh, the written language. Uh, and so it's, it's so awesome to me that the the that the divines seem to understand that, that our God in His majesty and in His righteousness also declares a word or reveals Himself through a written word for His people that as they read it, it takes on those characteristics uh, in and of themselves, that the word becomes majestic, that the word becomes pure, uh, and as, you know, as we're thinking about larger for life, you you think about even going back to the first catechism question that we've mentioned each and every episode, it seems that we're looking towards, we're working towards the glory of God. We're working towards a life that enjoys him uh, as we pursue Christ's likeness and are conformed uh, to Christ's likeness by the word. And so, You know, it it is this idea that God has given us a word or God who is majestic and pure and righteous gives us a majestic, pure and righteous word that is making us majestic, pure and righteous as as well. You know, this this word is life giving. This word is self-attesting, even as we as we think about these evidences of being a part or being of God, uh, his words to us. And so, you know, one of the things that we can really, you know, and I know this is addressed at the end of the end of the question and answer, but one of the things that we can really say, how do we know that it's the word of God is because it is the truth that then sanctifies us. Um, I think about Jesus's high priestly prayer, right? Sanctify them, uh, by the truth, your your word is truth. And then we see in Psalm 119, David ooing and aahing over this word that is, that is sweeter than the honey of the honeycomb, more valuable than all the riches that this world has to offer, that he would take the word because of its majesty, because of its purity above all earthly riches, that he would give everything up uh, to have this word so that he might... Uh, know God, uh, and so that He might uh, walk very closely uh, with His God as well. And so, I love that language—majest, uh, majesty, majestic—and and purity, pure. How the how the Westminster Divines have this understanding of the word that is so much more beautiful and 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 and, and is held in so much more high esteem. Uh, than, than many of the Christians that we, that we know today. And, and so I think that uh, in and in large, the evangelical world is really missing something when they don't have this high view of the Word that turns into uh, this experiential theology that, that the catechism is, is so chasing after for the Christian life. Um and so right off the bat it, it's trying to to help you have a high esteem for our Bibles um that that is unparalleled uh, in the Christian world uh today. You know,
3: I think there's something here that the reader of the larger catechism ought to be struck by. There's almost a challenge to the doubter, okay? Uh, because this is what the doubter would ask of the scriptures. Uh, Mm -hmm. Why should I think you are the word of God? And here it is. Yes, majesty, we get that. It's an impression, right? It's Mm -hmm. you look out on a a vista, it's magnificent, it's majestic, but purity, that's a thing that might be tested, right? And it's almost as if it's inviting uh, the reader, take up your Bible and read and see if you can find out it's error. There are none. It has the answer, right? So I think it's a really wonderful thing to just simply take note of. Um, the idea of its purity. We talk about the inerrancy, the infallibility of Scripture. Certainly that's what it's pointing to. Uh, But really this is uh, pointing directly to the evidencing, the self-evidencing of the Scriptures as the Word of God.
1: The next portion we've got here is, by the consent of all the parts and the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God. Uh, Sean, any thoughts on this one by the consent of all the parts, scope of the whole? What do you think that the divines were getting at there?
0: I think they were getting at the internal accord and agreement that we find throughout the scriptures. Now, I know there's always going to be the naysayers out there finding these supposed internal contradictions and and internal inconsistencies. Mm -hmm. uh, But there's all there's all of those have been answered and they've been answered for. Uh, millennia, and so we don't need to get into that, uh, and we don't need to really entertain those those bad faith objections. To be honest with you, but I think that's what the that's that's part of what the divines are getting at here is the internal agreement, the internal consistency, the internal uh, fittingness, if you like, like a jigsaw puzzle, the way the pieces just all fit together uh, and and to come together into this glorious whole. That's how it is with the scriptures, the way Genesis finds a chord with Matthew the way revelation finds a chord with Zechariah the way first and second Peter find a chord with Ecclesiastes and so on and so forth and then the scope of the whole that is scripture speaks rightly and poignantly and beautifully and accurately to everything that it speaks about and moreover it speaks about everything uh, and my mind is blanking right now I think I just paraphrased someone far smarter and far more important than myself uh, some some theologian but had that. A, a phrase that that a very catchy turn of phrase where he's you know the scripture is accurate about everything about which it speaks and moreover it speaks about everything and I think that that's what the divines are getting at here in that there's not an area of life that the holy scriptures don't speak to now again we're you're not going to turn to the holy scripture for a chemistry textbook or for a textbook on trigonometry we understand that but does the scripture speak to how one gets justified before a holy and righteous God absolutely does the scripture speak about fatherhood and motherhood and marriage, absolutely. Does the picture, does the scripture speak to uh, issues of child rearing or finances or vocation or wisdom in terms of business transactions and societal relations? Absolutely. And on and on and on, we could go. There is nothing about, there is nothing to which the scripture does not speak uh, in terms of how we live life on this earth until, uh, until either he calls us home or he returns again. So
1: this resolves the synoptic problem, doesn't it? Because if you're a young person and you go to a public high school or you go to a secular university, you're going to experience people uh, that try to just erode your confidence, uh, particularly in the New Testament. uh, The apparently contradictory accounts of the resurrection or of the different miracles. Was it one demoniac? Was it two demoniacs in the garrisons? And there are really reasonable answers to those questions. And I think that this does a really good job in saying that there is an internal coherence, consistency among other parts. There are no contradictions. Uh, it, De- Derek is shocked by this. Derek, um, you know, you <laughs> know, I saw the furrowed brow. It's his trade. It's his trade. He's being tongue in cheek with me. Uh, But that there is no uh, pitting James against Paul. There is not one doctrine of justification by works and another doctrine of justification by grace through faith. Any difficulties that we experience, it's always safer to assume that, you know, this is an operator error. It's not a fault of the scriptures uh, that that's been. I think something that uh, has been helpful for me in trying to explain that to people that, you no, know, there's one consistent message throughout all the scripture. And it's the same message from each gospel writer, each prophet and apostle. Yeah. Uh, With exception. Yeah.
0: Spin, before we get too far away from it, I pulled up that quote. It was Van Til, uh, that I was, that I was subconsciously paraphrasing. I, in, in my mind, I was thinking it's Dutch, but I didn't know if it was Vos, Van Til, or Bavink. And I didn't want to speak inaccurately, but here's, here's the full quote. The Bible is thought of as authoritative, On everything of which it speaks. Moreover, it speaks of everything. We do not mean that it speaks of football games, of atoms, etc., directly, but we do mean that it speaks of everything either directly or by implication. So there you have it. Well, Sean, I think you bring up a really
4: good point with that quote because when we say that the scriptures speak authoritatively, it's because that our God is the ultimate authority, right? Um, that as He speaks to us, it ought to be believed and obeyed, not because of any testimony of any man or any council or any church, but wholly because our God spoke it. He is truth Himself. He is the author of this Word that is truth, that is pure, and therefore it has to be received in its whole. You know, it's, it's this idea that that it, that it cannot contradict itself because our Lord in and of himself does not have any sort of contradiction. Um, and so when we're talking about this, I, I want to keep reminding our listeners that that are the same characteristics that belong to our God belong to his word. Um, and, and that's exactly what our confession uh, goes into in, in chapter 1, section 4. Um you know, it's, it's the authority of the Holy Scripture because our God is the ultimate authority. It is true and pure because our God is true and pure. And therefore, as Christians, we have to receive the whole of the word of God. And so uh, Dr. Fesco writes in an essay that's, that's been published on a number of sites. Um, it's a, he says, therefore, in the simplest terms, Christians must believe and obey the word of God because... God wrote it, and we know that God wrote it because the Bible says so. Um, and, and and so we we have to understand this self attestation of of the Word uh, comes to us only because and fully because mm. our God has indeed declared it.
0: That's right, um, and that's that's a that's a really good point that you that you bring up there, Matt. Is that you know. We call it the Holy Scriptures because it's God-breathed and it comes from a holy God. And so, therefore, it only is right and fitting that the qualities which God is should be reflected in the word which he breathes out. Uh, I mean, this is getting into the weeds, and and rightly so, of our doctrine of inspiration. Uh, Our God is holy, therefore the word he gives us is holy. Our God is truth, therefore the word he gives us is truth. Our God is pure and Infallible and inerrant; therefore, the word that He gives us is pure and infallible and inerrant and to be trusted, and so on and so forth. It bears His qualities and characteristics because it's a reflection of Him. That's 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 a great point you bring up. To back up to what
3: Stephen was saying earlier regarding the consent of all the parts, whenever we when we read that language, what we are encountering is the Westminster Divines engaging. With apostolic or early Christianity, this idea of the rule of faith, and in our modern world, you know, we do hear uh, the charge of, oh, there are just so many contradictions within the scriptures. That's so common, especially by unbelievers or or uh, liberal uh, Christians as well, that uh, this book or that book has a co- contradiction or an apparent contradiction, as we would understand. Um, but really, this is something that was asked by the ancient Christians. This is something that was asked for a book to be admitted into what we would call the New or the Old Testament. Uh, They they were concerned also, very rightly, uh, with uh, not only apparent contradictions, but actual contradictions, and I think that's why we have uh, those 66 books that we hold as canon or scripture, because they do agree, and the people that put them together believe that they agree, and they were every bit as literate, in fact, I would say, probably much more literate than modern readers uh, today.
1: And to your point there, Nick, we want to be careful not to say that man made the Bible. God inspired it, but we kind of like, you know, pick and choose which books that we like. And, you know, people will often accuse the early church of being selective, you know, being selective and only choosing those books of the Bible that they like and that the Apocrypha got a bad rap. But I think we have to... Be clear, and I think you are, that uh, these men were very careful to ensure that they were merely identifying books that were inspired, breathed out by God from those that were clearly not inspired. Because when you know and when you see that there are errors in, say, the Gospel of Thomas, I believe that's the book where it says that a woman must first become a man before she can inherit the kingdom of God, just some off-the-wall stuff. That doesn't agree with Luke. That doesn't agree with Matthew or uh, Peter or Paul. So uh, the church didn't make the canon, but we have this: uh, the the church's authority. And the confession will speak about this in other places. That the church is a genuine authority uh, in the life of the believer, but it's not on par in standing over Scripture. But it is authoritative in that she is the vessel wherein God has deposited the Scriptures and. Uh, that we're tasked here with rightly dividing the word of truth and guarding the people from error right
3: yeah absolutely and i do think also whenever we talk about this just to very briefly uh, speak on that that topic of canonicity once again you know the agreement of all the parts the the rule of faith that all all of the scriptures contain the same theology they're not working against one another but rather in concert to speak as a union uh, that's something that whenever You know, those early Christians were looking at the writings. They were saying, you know, simply, uh, do these things agree? It mattered to them. You know, another thing, was it apostolic, written in the apostolic age? Um, Significantly important. Yet another one, does this text actually claim to be the word of God? And as scholars of of theology, uh, you guys might have also read, you know, some of the early patristic writings, and they don't claim to be the word of God. In fact, they speak externally of the scriptures and they point toward them very specifically uh, in in distinction against their own. And, you know, one thing, I don't know, very briefly also that I'd want to say is I think Reformed theology gets, um, well, it it gets a a punch passed at us pretty often where people want to say, especially in the ancient faith kind of crowd, those that are moving more toward either Roman Catholicism or more often uh, toward Eastern Orthodoxy, they want to say Reformed theology is a it's an early modern theology. It's a thing isolated. It's it's the product of the late medieval uh, shift to uh, you know Renaissance age thinking or or Enlightenment thinking or so on and so forth. That it's it's distanced or or disconnected with the earlier church fathers. And I would just say that's pa- that's patently false. It's just not evidenced in the writing of our earliest or uh, earliest or this confessional document here.
1: Well, who wants to take this next, next bit, where it talks about the effect that the word has upon uh, the sincere reader, uh, and how that's an evidence of it being God's word and being that book, not one book among books, but that book above books. What do y'all think?
0: Well, I think it's speaking to uh, a kind of external evidence, admittedly a little more on the subjective side, but but an external evidence nonetheless, and that is, if I could paraphrase it, that the, the divines are saying, step back and consider and examine the effect that the Word of God has on the lives of people who come into contact with it, both the unbelievers as well as believers, or I should say, with the unbelievers who become believers as well as those who have been saints for a while. Um, by their light and power, to convince and convert sinners, to comfort and build up believers unto salvation. So there's this twin effect that when the Word of God comes into contact with a man, with a woman, with a child, uh, we see that it is the Word of God because of the effect that it has. The light and the power of Scripture has this ability because it is imbued with the power of God to convince and convert sinners. Uh, Amen and hallelujah. The Scriptures prick the conscience. They Convict a man of sin; they drive him to his knees, and they drive him to run and flee to Christ for refuge. They convince and convert sinners of their need, and then to run to Christ. And then, further on down the line in their life, those who are saints of God, those who are believers in Christ, it also serves to comfort and build them up, uh, to build up believers unto salvation. Uh, and and I love too how the the Catechism is so careful in its language here of describing salvation, at least in this context, as a lifelong. Uh, category, if you will, uh, not like uh, just justification, but salvation being this umbrella term that uh, I was saved, I am saved, I am being saved, I will be saved, is this, this wider category of salvation. So as we're growing up, as we're being sanctified, as we're moving toward glorification, we are being comforted in times of sorrow, in times of wounding and need and pain, and to be built up and strengthened and encouraged as we live the Christian life. The scriptures serve to do that as well. So there is, again, admittedly subjective, but there is an evidence to say, look at that man, look at that woman who once was a flagrant, God-hating pagan, and they came into contact with the Word of God, and now look at them and how they love the Lord Jesus Christ. And likewise, look at this saint over here who was converted X number of years ago. Remember how Remember how shallow their faith once was. Remember how small, seemingly small their understanding was and their faith was. And now look at them. Look how they've been built up in Christ. Look how mature they are in the faith. Look how they've grown. Look how much they love the Lord. The word of God has done that in their life. Take that as evidence and be encouraged by it is, I think, what the catechism is getting at here in part. You now, know,
1: one of the things, uh, go ahead, or, well, I'll No, Matt, you go. And then I think uh, we're probably at that point where we want to move on to that post-colon, right? Yeah. So you, you give your thought and then uh, Derek's going to kind of just enlighten us all on the inward testimony of the Spirit.
4: Well, I was just going to mention um, that, you know, I, I appreciate so much that the Catechism not only speaks to, and, and piggybacking off of Sean a little bit, not only speaks to the the conversion, uh, the the very... Uh, supernatural conversion of an enemy of God being transferred to the kingdom of light to be a, a son or daughter of God, but also to this idea of, of progressive sanctification. I, I mention often uh, when I'm preaching or when I'm teaching uh, Isaiah 55:11, my word will go out and not return to me empty. Uh, isn't that an, a self, you know, a testing work of the Lord by just bearing fruit even in believers' lives as he uh, conforms them into his own image, you know, enabling us to put to death sin in our life and to pursue Christ's likeness. I mean, that is a true sign of the the word being God's word because it carries that supernatural power by his spirit alongside of the reading and preaching of this uh divine word as well. And so uh super thankful uh for it that the That the word, yes, saves sinners, but also continues uh, to uh, enable us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling as we pursue Christ's likeness.
2: Spin, what did you want me to talk about? What was the, what did you tee me up for?
1: I want, I want to tee you up for the, but the Spirit of God bearing witness by and with the scriptures in the heart of man. I'm, we're giving you the best part. And I've been asleep.
2: So, um, is this that, no? Is this the larger Catechism out.
0: podcast, or is this like the uh, Financial Peace University interview that you were planning to be part of later? <laughs> oh. Welcome to
1: the Joe Rogan podcast, where we have Derek Bright, our guest. Uh, you know, this morning, We
2: hours of the morning. Yeah, um, yes. Yeah, so, the Holy Spirit bearing witness with our spirit—that there's something I think that we, as Reformed Christians, really. Uh, I'm not saying that we have a, a monopoly on understanding the work of the Holy Spirit. But one of the things that we have is this robust view that God's word is not bare words on a page. Right. That um, there, there's a reason that an unbeliever can read the scripture can find it beautiful, can find it, um, you know, interesting or whatever the case is and read it and still not be convinced it's God's word. What we need is the Holy spirit in that work of regeneration to cause us to trust the Bible and to see it for what it is as God's word. But once that happens, um, just as Romans says that the Holy spirit bears witness with our spirit, um, to testify the truth of adoption. Uh, similarly here, when we read the scriptures, it is God's spirit working through the text of scripture in our hearts, um, confirming the truth of God's word to us. There's something supernatural happening when we read the scripture um, that the Holy spirit is active in. And what's amazing is sometimes the Holy spirit is, um, I want to I'm going to paraphrase something I heard from from Dr. Kelly, but he said once uh, that the Holy Spirit is perhaps the most active, if you want to use that language um, of the persons. And yet it's the one that we notice the least, I think, sometimes. And um, and there is something about the work of the Holy Spirit that can often go unnoticed by our natural eyes um, and yet is working as we're reading the scriptures uh, calling us to come back, there's a reason we pick it back up and read it the next day and go back to it over and over and over again. It's that work of the spirit that um, uh, that's doing that. And, and again, it, it does, it bears witness with our spirit that we uh, we begin to trust the word of God for what it is. Um, so I think that we need to remember that we are supernaturalists, right? I mean, we believe that um, it's not just natural law grinding away. We're not just being convinced by logic and reason, though those things are great. And I'm a big fan of all that. Um, But there is something supernatural happening when we open up God's word by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, In fact, I'll read something that Voss says about this in his commentary. He's talking about how um, because of the fall, because of sin, you know, our hearts are darkened and those things Um, and he says, you know, there are of course, unconverted people who readily assent to the statement that the Bible is God's word by mere custom or tradition, rather than by personal conviction, such people are not really convinced that the Bible is God's word. They merely have a hearsay or secondhand faith, which reflects the true spiritual faith of other persons. So we can, um, you know, there's that, that threefold, um, Essence of faith, or what constitutes true saving faith? That historically we've said knowledge, assent, and trust. You can have knowledge, you can have assent, but it's the whole work of the Holy Spirit that causes you to trust. You got mm-hmm. to have that final, um, that final step there. And don't you love how this question
0: and answer parallels so nicely, uh, even question two that we we thought about a few uh, weeks ago, in that proofs and evidences will only take you so far. It's not to say that they're irrelevant. It's not to say that we should discard them or they're useless. We are furthest thing from that. Absolutely. Proofs and evidences all have their, have their place, but isn't it interesting the way you know the light of nature and the works of God declare plainly there is a God? This is from question two, but ultimately it's his word and spirit that only sufficiently and effectually reveal God to men for salvation uh the spirit has to be at work in order to finally make it clear to persuade a man savingly well so too here it is it, it, as as that that same that same paradigm that same understanding is being applied to the scriptures the proof the archaeological evidence the the beauty the way that it's written the the loveliness of it the agreement of it the historicity of it all good things all things that can speak to the trustworthiness and the veracity of scripture but ultimately it's got to be the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, bearing witness, persuading men in their hearts, convincing them and assuring them. That's what ultimately does it to persuade us uh, to believe and trust this. that these words are the very word of God. There's a Cornelius Van Til illustration when
1: he is talking about the observation of natural revelation by a believer and an unbeliever and contrasting the two. And I use this in evangelism with folks. I'll say, you know, we can both look at a sheet hanging out on the line and it's a white sheet. And I'll insist that it's a white sheet. But so long as this person has on rose colored glasses, they're going to keep insisting that it's a rose colored sheet. And what I think a lot of believers do is we keep arguing till we're blue in the face that the sheet is white. The sheet is white. And all the while we ignore the interpretive difference between us and the unbeliever. And that is that they have rose-colored glasses, or they have a heart and mind that is hostile to God and has yet to be redeemed and renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And in our evangelism, and even as we're arguing for the proofs for the resurrection, and we're arguing the case for the reasonableness of the faith that we profess, at the end of the day, we do need to get to the matter of the heart and say to the unbeliever, The reason why you and I can look at the same world that God has created, and I think, and we can look at the same word that so clearly persuades, convinces, and converted me, and it's not doing that for you, is the Holy Spirit. And then you get into the rubber meeting the road of personal conversion and a personal need for Christ that uh, so often can be lost if we just deal with the level of evidences
2: yeah and and let me just say this if you're a, a a preacher especially you should find comfort in this um that there really is reason for you to call out to sinners and say choose you this day whom you will serve or repent in the lord jesus christ and you will be saved um and you can trust in the teaching and the preaching of the word of god why because the Holy Spirit is the one who works in the hearts of people. You can take the gospel to someone's ears, but it's the spirit that takes it to the heart. And so we need to um, trust that God, by his Holy Spirit, will work in the means of grace that he has given us. We need to trust him with that. That's why, honestly, it yes, there's pressure to being a preacher, no doubt but there is something about the work of the spirit in the word of God that takes the pressure off of you that you don't have to be clever. You don't have to be the smartest guy in the world. You don't have to be a comedian. You don't have to, to bully people into the kingdom. You can just let the scripture fly. I mean, what's that, that quote from uh, Spurgeon about um, the word of God. And it's like a, a lion. You just let it out of its cage, you know? I mean, that's what we get to to do, and if maybe you're listening to this and you're saying, "Well, I'm a lay person, or I'm a father or mother, or whatever the case is," and I I don't have a uh, a teaching ministry. Well, that's okay. the The same thing still applies in that if you share the word of God with someone and they don't convert, don't walk away and think I blew it. Um, and in the same token, don't. If, if you share the word of God with someone and they do convert, don't walk away and go, look how clever I was. Mm-hmm. But trust the sovereignty of God and the Holy Spirit in the work of that person's life, whether uh, they convert or not. Trust God's spirit. He's the one. He'll take the responsibility. He'll uh, he'll own it. If someone doesn't convert, it is on the Holy Spirit. That was his sovereignty, his spirit. You know, it's God's spirit at work. And so trust God, trust his spirit, trust his word.
0: I love that quote, uh, that Spurgeon quote, Derek. The word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose, and the lion will defend itself. Uh, Now, according to the nitpickers over at the Spurgeon Library, Spurgeon conveyed this idea at least three times, but he never said it quite this way. There's a similar quote found in one of his sermons, but all right, fine. Whether or not he said it precisely that way, it's still a great quote, and we love it, and y'all should love it too.
3: Here you go. I've got you a quote, a historical one from Luther. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amstorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing.
0: The word did everything. There you go a couple of fine quotes or at least approximation of quotes from our favorite dead Lutheran and our favorite dead Baptist.
2: That's not my favorite Baptist.
0: Who's your favorite? Well, that, that's just my favorite dead Baptist. Who's your, who's, who's your, dead Baptist and who's your favorite living Baptist? There's the no, I was going to say,
2: well, my favorite dead Baptist, you know, I actually do love Spurgeon, but I was going to say Bunyan, you know, got to yeah. love John yeah. Bunyan. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Warren Smith. He, but you prick him anywhere. He bleeds bib line is what, um somebody said about him, you know. So you you just touch him anywhere and he breath, he bleeds Bible. So um, but yeah, favorite living Baptists, they don't exist. I'm just kidding, I love <laughs> Baptists very much, actually.
3: Well, with that, it seems like we're kind of wrapping things up for today. Friends, uh, Sean, Stephen, Matt, Derek, and I would like to thank you for joining us. We hope that as we have thought through these holy things and have gone through the larger catechism that you've joined along with us, and that you've been helped. We invite you to join us again as we take up the Westminster Larger Catechism in episode five
0: next week. Thank you all, and Lord bless. You have been listening to Larger for Life a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism brought to you by the Blue Ridge Institute and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about this podcast, please visit our website on Podbean at largerforlife.podbean.com where you can subscribe to the show in the podcast platform of your choice and browse past episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow us at Larger for Life Podcast and on Facebook, you can follow us at facebook.com slash Larger for Life. Be sure to tune in next time and join us again at Larger for Life.